Welcome back to the New World Podcast. I'm Maurice. Today we had Mr. Jeremy Suri. He's a historian at the University of Texas, Austin. We discussed many themes, including the answering the fundamental question of why we need to study history. We also looked at the influence of United States foreign policy in the world. We discussed the status of America in the 21st century. We discussed the rising China and a potentially new Cold War. We discussed what the power the president has. And more so, we discussed how Gen Z is able to further enhance its position in the world to make to make change in the midst of a rival institutional failure. And so we want to kind of set this teaser up for you guys and to leave you guys before we begin the episode with this idea of why we need to study history. I think studying history teaches us where we came from, tells us how we got here, and more so over will inform us to make better decisions on where we want to be headed. I think it's sometimes a bit more easier for us to simplify things and put them into boxes from an evolutionary perspective, because we don't want to waste that much energy or heat or effort in order to work more for our survival. And I think it sometimes requires us to be a bit more skeptical about what we read, what we understand in the short term and short term sound bites of the world that we live in today of instant gratification, and more so to take effort out of our time and day to understand the issues and the complexity of human nature and really humanity and the world at large. And so with that, I'll leave you guys to listen to this episode with Mr. Jeremy Suri. Take care. 2020 was a tumultuous year. The question we must all ask going forward is simple. What values, ethics, and behaviors from the old world are we going to preserve? And what new perspectives are we going to embrace as we build our future civilizations? This is the New World Podcast with Ariz Kaki and Akio Samji. So uh, welcome back, guys, to the New World Podcast. I'm Ariz. This is Akio. And our guest today is Mr. Jeremy Suri. As you mentioned, he's a professor at UT Austin. And we're just going to get started immediately in uh, some of the question in some of the questions. Uh, but first, I want to sort of bring a quick, uh, I also want to lay some background information for our audience, which is. Um, it seems as though like a lot of times many of our many of our audience are science-based, entrepreneurial-based, tech-based. And uh, a lot of the questions that some people get is we see like problems around the world erupting, whether they be, they be geopolitical, whether they be social, cultural. And often it seems as though there's a sort of a, a I guess, communication barrier between so-called your like technologists in STEM, your activists on one hand, and then there's like everyone else in between. And I think we had to somehow make conversations cur- curated towards becoming multidisciplinary. It seems as though nowadays you can't stay in your own echo chambers anymore and you have to sort of get out and you have to sort of speak to people who are like ex- experts in various topics other than your own. And maybe you can sort of find some sort of commonalities between everyone. So with that, we brought up on uh, Mr. Jerry St- uh, Jeremy Suri, who happens to be an historian. And we're basically going to talk to him about not just American history, but more so over uh, history as a subject of study for Gen Z, in particular, well, how post how the world as we see it post 2020 could use a bit of learning history, sort of not repeat the same mistakes and kind of uh, work towards building a more prosperous and better future for us all. And so with that, I want to ask like the biggest question, which is, uh, Mr. Suri, why do you think it's important for all of us to learn history? Like, why do you think it's important for STEM students uh, people in, in it who are innovators, but at the same time, even for technological progress, why do you think learning history, the, the sort of the big H word, is a really is really important for us? Like I understand, like people in the economics field and in business, it's important for them to study about economic history, different periods, different plateaus in the economy, different boom markets and bust markets. But why do you think that history is important for everyone to learn? 
I think history is absolutely cru crucial for everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're a scientist or a humanist or a business person or just an ordinary citizen, uh, because what history provides is a basis for one to understand human nature and human societies. Mm -hmm. And no matter what field you're in, you're operating in the world of human beings. Mm -hmm. And human beings are different from lab rats. They're different from equations. Those things are important as heuristics for understanding part of our world. But history is essential for the human beings. So what does history provide us with? It provides us with an understanding of how human beings interact with one another. And it provides us with the foundation for understanding the interactions from the past that have brought us to our current moment. And in this way, uh, history of science is absolutely crucial. There's a lot of work by historians like Thomas Kuhns, uh, who basically look and tell us that, uh, this is Kuhns' argument, that scientists actually make decisions about what to study, what evidence to use, uh, based on the moment they're in. And oftentimes a new discovery is because they take themselves out of their moment and they can look at evidence from another time period and bring it to bear on their own. So Thomas Kuhn, for instance, argued that Einstein's discovery was not actually new material. It was rethinking in a different context what Newton had thought about before him. Hmm. What does history do? It allows us to step out of our world that we're in today, step out of many of our assumptions, and ask ourselves new questions about the evidence we have in front of us. That's what creativity is about. That's what scientific discovery is about. I'll give you one very clear example. Uh, for a long time, the, the science of biology and the science of um, human management uh, presumed that uh, people could only be male or female and that they would only interact in certain ways. If you take yourself out of our current moment, you can see that in the past, human beings define themselves in different ways. To be transgender is not new. Uh, to be uh, someone who is transsexual or any of these things, uh, you don't have to take a moral position to recognize that these have been present in our world. And all of the biology that assumed they didn't exist as realities is ahistorical. The historical perspective allows us to see more options uh, around us. When we're thinking about global health today after a pandemic, we have to think this way. What are the options for our society from the past that help us prepare for the future, but also help us to undertake new kinds of actions so we don't repeat the mistakes that we've made before? Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to talk more about economic history. Do you think it could influence the way we facilitate the future of transactions like blockchain? Like, is there any precedence in the past relating to new blockchain technology today, or is that something they've created from a new? I, I am fascinated by blockchain and cryptocurrency stuff. I don't fully understand it. That's my limitation. You all have to explain it to me. I think Gen Z is going to be so much more sophisticated, already is, about these issues. Uh, but absolutely, history is crucially important because the history of money tells us something that we all forget that money is not natural. Money is created in a certain cultural and technological moment. So the reason we use the greenback, the dollar bill, right, which is used around the world as a kind of global currency, right, uh, is because of a set of decisions that were made by the US government and then the world after World War II. Uh, and that could change. Uh, there's nothing from God that gave us the dollar bill nor the rupee, nor the uh, yen, whatever it is that you use. And so the first point I would make is that blockchain makes a lot of sense. Cryptocurrencies make a lot of sense. As we move into a new world uh, where people are, tr are undertaking transactions across space and speed, as, as they are, paper currency that we still use so much, right, doesn't make a lot of sense. And the way we think about it, the way we protect it against counterfeiting, obviously, also has to 
has to change. So I don't know what the future of currency will look like, but I can say this as a historian. Mm-hmm. It will look different in 50 years than it does today. Mm-hmm. And Gen Z will be reinventing money for us. And blockchain is part of that story. Mm-hmm. For sure. And uh, speaking of, uh, from the perspective of a historian, um, from your perspective, how how do we, as non-academics in the field of history, I think many of us that, you know, with Gen Z, I'm pretty sure you encountered this with some of your students, the ones that you teach on an undergraduate level, or just students that you possibly know, or even like people in your own life who are in the Gen Z demographic. Uh, a lot of us now live, as you mentioned, in a world, that, world that's very sophisticated and more so connected than ever before. Like people have sort of tried to relate to some like previous um, iterations and there were like different types of like, oh, Columbus's discovery of the new world or, you know, when uh, there was massive colonization, you know, you had a mixing of cultures. That's all true and done. Maybe you can sort of relate the idea to that. But this is, it's never been done to the point where all 7 billion, almost all 7 billion people on this planet are somehow interconnected to the point where you, you'll probably, if anything, if you're living under a rock, you'll probably get the exact same information like a day later. But you'll basically be up to date on everything, right? And um, so when, when we sort of live in this world of, when, when Gen Z live in this world of like instant communication and instant gratification, as a result of just the systems and institutions that have been built upon us. How do you look at some of the problems now from a historical perspective? Like, do we, there's been a lot of talk, as you've probably seen throughout this past year, a lot of things with regards to cultural, moral, and political relevance in the lens of history of historical injustices that have happened like 50, 100, 200, 300 years ago, some even a thousand years ago, as we're seeing right now with uh, what's happening in Palestine and Israel. Um, how do you look at history from a historian, like from this perspective? Do you, as you said, remove yourself from the present and go all the way to the past and look at it from a from a perspective of victim versus victor? Or do you think, from what I've sort of gathered after reading a lot, um, is I'd like to look at history never as a victim and a victor, but more as a cause versus effect kind of methodology? Because sure, there are victims and victors. And generally, the whole, ter- the whole cliche is that the victors get to write the books uh, after the battle is done, but I still think that there's a lot to be said from cause and effect because you can always go to the root of the problem, right? So I don't know. What, what do you think? I, I like the way you put it. Um, the assignment of victors and victims uh, is a political decision. That's not a historical uh, reality. Uh, different moments have produced benefits to some groups and not to others. Uh, we study history not to assign guilt or to de- de- determine who won the game. Uh, we study history to understand the patterns of human behavior. And what we are living through now, as you said so well, is a world that has sped up uh, in, in ways that we're still making sense of. Mm-hmm. The speed at which we transfer information and ideas and images uh, words have traveled fast for a while, but now images travel fast. I look at my, my, my kids who are Gen Z or my students, and you know they're, they're, they're seeing thousands of images a day, and those images are moving them, changing them, even in ways they don't understand. Think of what made George Floyd's uh, lynching so um, moving to so many of us was that we watched it. Mm-hmm. We watched it happen. It was not unique. This has happened for decades, for more than a century in the United States, but we watched it. And it changed us and it motivated so many of us in ways we hadn't been motivated before. We can give negative examples also, right? right? So we don't study history to try to figure out who's winning and who's right and who's wrong. That's a political decision. We study history to understand the patterns of human behavior and what patterns are relevant for today. So one thing we know 
is that with new technologies, new communications, new ways of people exchanging information, which happens with every generation, this is reinvented, uh, it, it reorders our politics, it reorders our societies. Institutions are slow to catch up. Human beings move faster than institutions. Mm -hmm. So for example, our universities were not doing much online until the pandemic required that to happen. Right. Yet most of our students were online for most of their communication, right? right. Think how behind our universities were, right? Mm -hmm. And finally, we're starting to catch up because we had no choice, right? That's an example of something that a historian would immediately say is, as these changes are occurring, be conscious of the friction in our institutions and how hard it's going to be for institutions to adjust. That's one point. A second historical point would be that new technologies are often more useful at first and easier to use for those who have ill intent rather than good intent. Mm -hmm which is to say, if you can get people communicating to one another in a new way, you can usually get them to hate more. Hate is very easy, right? Uh, again, this is a historical insight, why we study history, human behavior. Uh, it's very easy to get people to hate. hate. Hate comes very naturally, right? I often say if I'm in a group of, with a group of Gen Z students, right? I, I can say a few words and get you guys fighting with each other very, very, very quickly. I could do that with, with any group. I could put a $20 bill in the middle of the room and you'll be fighting over it uh, as well. Uh, these sorts of insights, we could go through a long list, right? Of patterns of human behavior during other moments of communication, technological and transportation change during other revolutionary moments like our own. They will not play out the same this time, but they give us warnings. They give us the questions to ask as we're thinking about our society. If it's true that new communication means new spread of hate, we better do things to counteract that. If it's true that institutions like universities are slower to react than human beings, we better do things to try to get our institutions to be more flexible, right? So history is not giving us the silver bullet answer, but what it is doing is it's giving us the right questions and it's giving us an understanding of what we're experiencing based on what we've seen other periods experience during other moments of change. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of giving us a sense of precedence in a way. Uh, precedent, context, Uh, and rootedness, right? Uh, the other thing I often tell people is if you don't study history, no matter what field you're in, uh, you're making yourself an orphan. Every culture human beings have ever studied teaches children what the parents did. Mm. Every culture talks about the grandparents. Sometimes they lie, but they say something about the grandparents, right? right? Yeah. Why do we do that? Uh, it's not just because it gives us precedent. It gives us confidence and connection. All of us behave in certain ways because we have a sense of where we came from. If you're studying molecules, you need to know where the way you study them came from. What happened? Why are you in a laboratory that looks this way? Why are you doing things? That helps us understand what we're doing, helps us see the opportunities, but also the limits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know you talk, touched upon George Floyd and how spreading hate is really rapid through the connection of people. But do you see any advantages uh, of our interconnectedness, like through social media? My, my, my belief is that uh, interconnections often produce many long-term benefits, short-term challenges, long-term benefits. Right. Um, so, for example, uh, even though we're having trouble uh, vaccinating people, particularly in the country where my family comes from in India right now, and it's horrible to watch, um, the fact that we were able to produce these vaccines as quickly as we did mm -hmm. by sharing scientific me uh, methods, scientific knowledge across continents, mm -hmm. we never could have done it without the communications technologies that we have now, right? So we are saving lives, particularly in the United States and in Canada now because of these vaccines, because of this connection. So in the long term, we're often better off. The problem is in the short term, people can exploit 
mm. uh, these communications is why we're seeing the rise of authoritarianism mm -hmm. in so many societies. Mm -hmm. And my belief is that, and this is right on, I think, for Gen Z, during these moments of change, the pioneers who figure out how to use the technology for good are the youngest people. So it's not going to be, unfortunately, the people governing our societies, because mm -hmm. they're always older. It's going to be people just like you, mm -hmm. just like my kids, my students, those who are 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, who understand these technologies are people of goodwill and will figure out how to use them for good because you have a stake in that. Right, right. Okay, I see. Uh, speaking of which, uh, we'll move on to U.S. policy in uh, just a moment. Um, of course... Both of us being from Canada, uh, we sort of had previous episodes uh, touching upon those very uh, exact topics. We've spoken about social media. We've spoken about the, our favorite <laughs> uh, people, the mainstream media, um, uh, people that, that I think that, as you mentioned, institutions are always slower to take. And I think I, I sort of look, I, I've sort of looked at history if you've kind of in the way like um, it's always been like the there's this uprising, there's this rising to greatness. And then there's this sort of establishment moment where those exact same pioneers that originally yes. built that exact same institution to its peak they kind yes. of die off and the people that replace them the so-called second generation afterwards and then ever so continuing have this weird establishment kind of mentality which is essentially this throwing cash at a machine just to keep it up float right uh, right above the clouds before it sinks and i think you then have i guess an iteration in the fourth fifth or sixth generation where you have sort of this weird counterculture this uprising culture which is sort of deemed radical it has its good and like i said if anything has its pros and cons but the pro the good is generally the people that want to disrupt and disrupt in the not the negative connotation but in the more positive connotation yeah. so um yeah i think with regards to the u.s policy with regards to u.s policy on the world many of us like around the world that are not living in the united states i think people always tend to ask the question like why does everyone else not just in the west anymore it used to be like a west versus east or a first world versus second world problem i think it's more so like a global problem which is why does everyone in the i guess everyone else in the world look to the united states as sort of the the shining uh beacon on the hill um why is it that the u.s in and of itself is still relevant as a powerhouse and so could you kind of uh, speak to the so-called maybe give us a background information with the rise of the united states in particular sort of the second half of the 20th century and i guess where it comes to to like 2020 or 2021 and then we'll sort of speak upon uh, the status of America going forward, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Great question. It's something I spend a lot of time writing about and uh, lecturing about and teaching. Um, the, one of the most important phenomena of the last um, century is the rise of the United States, not just as a powerful country, but as a, a country that exerts cultural influence, intellectual influence, media influence uh, around the world. And, and there are a lot of reasons for this, but there are probably three that stand out that are also particularly relevant for today. First is that the United States uh, is blessed with so many resources and uh, so many capable people. And I mean capable people because of an education system, because of an environment that provides people with, with opportunity, not everyone and not equal opportunity, but an environment that has provided opportunity because of the abundance of resources and the abundance of people, but not overcrowding. So there is, there is the um, influence that comes from power and resources. Second, there's the influence that comes from position. Uh, after World War II, the United States is in a position to write the rules. Many of the rules we use, the way we um, speak English as almost a default language in so many parts of the world. My family in India, they grow up speaking regional dialects, but then they all learn English as the lingua franca for business, for diplomacy. French was in that role in the 19th century. English has taken that on. Uh, international law. 
the way we conduct international commercial activities, the way the internet is structured. All of this, the United States was the first mover, the one after World War II when the world was largely destroyed that was still left standing in the United States and able to rebuild. And so it's not that the United States rebuilt these things to keep others out. We actually wanted others involved, but we created the code. We, were, we created the operating system uh, for a lot of it. And we still use that. The Chinese actually play by our rules in some respects, but try to turn the rules to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have powers, first point, position is the second point. And then the third point is the dynamism of American society. Um, some people find this radical uh, and, and for good reason, right? American society is a society that's constantly creating and destroying good and bad ways. Uh, and that's why so much of the new technology for every generation since World War II has come from the United States. It's, a, it's an economy and a society that encourages risk-taking penalizes people who don't take good risks and rewards enormously people who make lucky or good good bets, however you want to term it, right? So it can be a Jeff Bezos, it can be a Bill Gates, right? It, it, it can be, uh, you know, the founders of Facebook and Google, all of that, right? They're in the United States uh, because of that. Uh, and I remember I, I went to college at Stanford at the, at, in the 1990s, and I remember you could feel that in Silicon Valley, right? There was this sort of sense of risk-taking, other societies don't have that. Why do we have that in the United States? There are all kinds of reasons, but the main one is that there's a sense that those resources are there and you have access to those resources if you take if you take risks. So some would, some would call that our free enterprise system even. Uh, the fourth point I would also make is that traditionally the United States has been a very stable society. We've been a society with a lot of unequal suffering. Uh, we've had, we still live with the legacy of slavery. We've had many moments of anti-immigrant sentiment. We're just coming out of one now, but it's generally been a very stable society. We haven't been uh, overrun by foreign countries because of our location in the world. So all of these things, power, position, free enterprise system, dynamism, and our stability all contribute to American power and American influence. And the United States has, for the most part, used its influence around the world to pursue things that benefit the United States, but at least make a credible case that they benefit other countries. So the United States has led not just with force, but also with attraction, with incentives. It doesn't mean we've been equal. It doesn't mean we, we haven't done things for our benefit most of all, we have. But we've been able to sell this to other people, other countries, as something that's in their interest as well. In contrast to the Soviet Union, which had a much harder time selling it, what it was doing is in the interests of other countries. Uh, and that's a really important part of this. I wrote a whole book about that, basically arguing that the United States convinces other countries, you can agree or disagree, that our system is the best system around. And the best model of this, the best example, what we already talked about is money. Everyone uses dollars, even though they're just printed in the US and signed by the Secretary of the Treasury, right? Uh, because they trust the US system more than they trust, quite frankly, rupees or yen or renminbi, right? I mean, so that's that's part of it we've sold it mm -hmm. and i know you touched upon china and so i wanted to bring up something uh, i don't know if you know the show the office but, uh, sure in it, yeah in it the main character Marco scott he sees a magazine and the headline says that china will become the world power by 2020 and he starts panicking and now it's funny to see because that could be a reality and i wanted to ask you from a historical standpoint do you think that china could be the next world power and overtake the united states uh, within the 21st century it's it's an important question that many people are asking, of course. Um, 
So uh, history tells us that all uh, empires, all societies rise and fall. Nothing is inevitable. As I've entered my 40s, my wife is also reminding me that you can't be youthful forever, right? At some point, you have to become an adult, right? We go through, we go through phases, um, and the future will not look as it did in the past. The United States will not have so much more power than China and other societies. But history also tells us that transitions, we call these power transitions, are very sticky and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And they don't happen fast, and they often don't happen in the ways we expect them to happen. Why is that? Uh, that's because the challenging country, the country that challenges the one on top, often has its own problems to deal with. And as it tries to rise, it creates uh, enemies, it creates its own internal problems. And I think that's where China is today. Uh, they have a lot of difficulties. The legacy of the two plus one policy means that, for example, they have a very terrible demographic imbalance. They're in a region where most of their neighbors don't trust them. Um, and now they're also in a situation where um, their health systems and food systems and others are looking less effective than they did before. Uh, COVID has highlighted that for them. I mean, in a certain way, the United States has started out poorly, but has done well with the vaccines. Other countries have not. So, so I think um, it's not going to be easy for the Chinese to come close to rivaling the United States. But I do think they will be a challenger to the United States in particular areas. Again, history would say that the country that has a, a large lead doesn't lose its lead everywhere, but it sees it chipping away in certain places. So what the U.S. Uh, military, I think, worries about appropriately is the Chinese challenging not the United States all around the world, but challenging us in Asia, in the South China Sea and those, in those areas. And I think we will see more challenges. We'll see more parity in that area than we will, for instance, in Europe or in South America. Right, right. And then um, going on that, uh, in terms of um, America, uh, do you think, however, the caveat, like I, I understand the idea of civilizations rising and falling, and it goes back to our initial question about the interconnectedness of the world. I think globalization, to a certain extent, in a weird hysterical way, the United States at the start of the 21st century, I believe, are the same sort of individuals, at least the people at the top, the elite, the, the political class, the economic class, the multinationals, empowered the same country, I, I believe, in my opinion, after studying this, like China to rise in greatness in terms of its position today. So it's it's a weird dichotomy. And, and this brings me back to the point of like why everything all of a sudden has become more interwoven than ever before. And so this idea of a challenger and a sort of, like I said, an establishment and a radical coming up. Um, do you think this dichotomy, this is a weirdly positioned time in history where this has never happened before to the point where like, even if like the United States wants to do something to China or if China wants to usurp the United States' authority, there is basically benefits and risks to, to both of them at this point, right? It used to be that you had the European powers have their colonies and you really knew who to attack. Like you knew that the British Raj was under India's control. And then you had like, you, you had Russians in the North, right? You had you had the Middle Eastern uh, Islamic dynasties. You knew where everyone was. Now, as the world has become more globalized, as assets are being moved, as money is being moved, as we move on to, as you mentioned, digital currencies, and now you have talks of like decentralization with blockchain, do you see it much more harder for the same dichotomy to continue? Like the sort of, sort of like challenger replacement, challenger replacement? It's a great question. So the world is definitely deeply interconnected. And if you think about the US-China relationship, the two countries need each other. So much. I mean, so they're like brothers who are feuding, but they're in the same family, right? It's called uh, international capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if the American economy were to decline considerably, the Chinese would feel the pain 
because of their, uh, especially their holding of U.S. bonds. They're one of the largest holders of U.S. bonds. Our debt is floated through China. Uh, if uh, the Chinese decide uh, that they want to act in a belligerent way, that hurts our economy. So both, we, we are deeply interdependent. It's not in our interest to see the other one fall, as much as we might think about that as we talk about a rivalry. So your point is very well taken in that. And I think that's often what motivates efforts at compromise and efforts at collaboration. That said, again, this is why historical perspective is important. Just what's rational is not always what people do. And uh, the history of, for instance, World War One, when we were also, Europe at least then, was a very interdependent world in a similar way, would remind us that sometimes countries do things that harm themselves right. in the course of a rivalry. And we've also seen that in our own interpersonal relations. Mm-hmm. And so one of the most important things history teaches us is we must use the interdependence to encourage recognition and policies that highlight that rather than deny it. And it's very dangerous when you have a Donald Trump and a Xi Jinping, both of whom are talking as if these interdependencies don't exist. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's absolutely silly to blame one country for a global pandemic, because as we all understand, right, um, pandemics arise right, from the intersection and interconnection of people. Right. It's not one country that starts this. Right? And when you start talking that way, you move toward a belligerent phase. Right. That can encourage behavior that actually undermines everything you've just talked about. So everything you said is right. Mm-hmm. We just have to make sure people are conscious of it. And history teaches us that we need to remind ourselves of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, speaking of, uh, as you said, uh, you're, so you're essentially you can say that you're bullish on America surviving in the new world. Maybe not at the exact sort of um, state at which it currently remains. As And as you said, that's often sometimes... Like, like, I think sort of back to the whole British Empire at the end of World War II and its handle off to the United States. And you can also argue, uh, argue that that was the first time you sort of witnessed mass decolonization because history was taught that if you had a territory seized by an empire that historically had people. So if you think of like, a, we, a very odd example to use, but like the British Mandate of Palestine, it's often been like, sh- like thrown up thrown between different empires. You had the Romans, then you had like the Byzantines and whatever. This is the first time where you actually had those nation states rise up with their own national identities to sort of rebel against the British. And so even that is in and of itself in a historical context is something totally new. And then yeah. now you have this um, interconnectedness. So do you think that um, with the historical with the historical narrative that there's always, um, as you said, it's always unpredictable. So maybe none of us really know what we're talking about. But other than that, I think what you always say is that people sometimes don't act rationally, even though we think that the the best way is obviously to act objectively, but sometimes you have people who act, you know, kind of weirdly, right? So, I mean, I don't know. So I, I, I'm bullish on the United States for one reason, really, actually. Uh, I, again, my study of history tells me that uh, transitions in societies, uh, the way that those transitions occur is dictated by the young, active, educated people in those societies. Mm. And the United States has a young, dynamic, vibrant, diverse well-educated, well-prepared group of Gen Z and millennials. Mm -hmm. And as of 2019, Gen Z and millennials, uh, and I guess Gen Z, millennials, and a little bit of Gen Y all together were more than 50% of the US population. You don't see that when you look at Congress. You don't see that when you turn on the TV. Uh, But that's the reality of our society. We're a young society, United States, and we're filled with more diversity among young people, people from all over the world. Austin, Texas, where I live, is filled with people from India, like myself, Mm -hmm. from China, from elsewhere. Um, And uh, there's so much creativity. Mm -hmm. We see that Mm -hmm. in our business and technological world. It doesn't mean that we're going to be ahead of everyone else, but that generation 
is going to be able to do some incredible things. They are going to see the problems of our world. And if they're historically informed, they will bring wisdom to use their smarts and their energy to address environmental issues, to address issues of global uh, rivalries, uh, human rights, all of these things. So I'm bullish for that reason. I'm less bullish on societies that have sheltered their young people, that have miseducated them, that have not allowed for diversity. Uh, and, and those societies are societies that are in a lot of trouble. And, and China's one of them because of its two plus one policy, right? right? right. You, it, so so I, I'm, I'm bullish on countries like the US and India that have young talent and it's, it's in the hands of Gen Z. Which is why I think your podcast is so important. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we'll move on to uh, a bit, continuing with the idea of China. Um, so, as you said, it's if we go back to the original like Cold War, we see like this rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. At the end, at the result was that the United States rose as the sole power in the world. But do you think at this point, um, as Akil mentioned before, with this rapid sense of interdependency and often? Um, before it was an easy story to, to kind of sell. And I guess it was an easier story to understand because the world by far wasn't as complicated at that time because you sort of knew exactly, like I said, where you're going to attack, who your enemies were, who your allies were. At this point in a more interconnected world, do you think that the so-called Cold War 2.0 or this sort of race between China and the United States and its allies um, is going to be less about the so-called ideology and more so about the fight, as you said, between uh, dominance of various sectors of the economy, more so less about the land dominance, as you said, but more so like being able to control your backyard. And then at the same time, also being able to be the country that like when it walks into a room, like everyone fears at that point, like it's sort of like, uh, the, I'm thinking of like a space race 2.0. I'm thinking of uh, the, like a, then you have like private sector space races, which you have like the Elon Musk's of the world, which is, that's what I'm saying in and of itself, a weird caveat to this historical narrative. Then you have electric vehicles, you have vaccine diplomacy, like you mentioned. And then you also have blockchain as being this all of a sudden decentralization of power, which we'll get to later on. But um, where, where do you see this next phase post 2021? Hopefully when all this, uh, these restrictions and these lockdowns and people are traveling more, I'm sort of seeing this weird like phase of like three to six months of people just going back to normal and like everything just like for everyone just forgets about what, what just happened. And then six months later, everyone's like, gets hit with the lag and it's like, oh, something this did happen right and then we get back into this weird phase of like everyone just hating on each other so what do you what do you see up, up and coming in the next one to two years in the short term and then more so for the next decade i guess i think international rivalries are different now you're, you're right um and, and it's less about territory uh it's often more about access to resources which has always been and access to markets and access to minds and eyes Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the world is moving into a moment now where we're going to see a sort of a collective sigh of relief among uh, Americans and others who are fortunate enough to be in societies that are not being hit as hard any longer and which have access to vaccines. Mm -hmm. And we'll see a little bit of what we saw in the 1920s after the influenza uh, right. pandemic. People who saved a lot of money because they didn't go out to restaurants for a long time and didn't go on vacation, mm -hmm. uh, slowly you know, opening the door and going outside their house like I've started to eat in restaurants with my family outside, not inside. Uh, it'll be a little while before I go inside again, but soon, right? Mm -hmm. And starting to go to concerts. And so there'll be a, an upturn in social behavior, people making up for lost time mm -hmm. in certain ways. But the people are not going back to where they were before. They're making different life choices. Right. Many have now taken this year to think about what's important in their lives. And, and if there were to be another pandemic, what are the things I really care about? What do I want to do? Do I want to work in the job I'm in? Right, I'm right. fortunate to have a job I love. Not everyone does have that, right? And some people are thinking, should I move jobs? There are all sorts of issues uh, related to this. I think the future of international competition uh, 
will be about just what I'm talking about. Uh, which societies have young people who are able to find ways to use their talent for things they believe in, for things that serve a social good? What should leadership be about today? It should not be about telling people what to do, encouraging them to use their talent for innovative things that also are things they believe in that are good for the public as a whole. Mm. So I love the students who want to use innovative technology to help uh, improve the environment. Mm. or innovative technology to help identify groups that are being mistreated, mm. things of that sort. And, and, and I think that's where the competition is going to be, which countries harness that kind of creativity going forward, which countries don't. Mm. Uh, the United States is showing a lot of evidence that it can be at the front end of that story, but we also have a lot of people in the country who are against that. And so it's a kind of, we're debating this, that's what American politics are about today, is this debate. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, going back to the first Cold War and the space race, I know the United States and the Soviet Union are fighting who could be the first to go to the moon. And since the United States succeeded, you know, a lot of people put faith into that government. But now it's more so of a private sector, a private sector space race. So do you see people's um, like focus shifting over to the private sector instead of the government? And will international competition be more so private sector against each other rather than countries themselves? Well, Akhil, it's a great question. And I do think there are more private actors. Uh, I would say the range of actors is larger. Mm -hmm. It's not just a few heads of state. Uh, it's not an entirely new story, right? History tells us that a lot of the empires that were built were built by joint stock companies right. that right. were not really run by the government. In fact, they often got their governments into trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not entirely new, but there are more of these private entities now. Mm -hmm. You know, There was the Dutch East India Company, the British East India Company, a handful of them right now. There are many more of these entities, thousands, millions of them. Mm -hmm. So it's a more complicated space. But it still, in the end, requires the help and facilitation of the public sector of governments, right? right. Businesses do not operate without government. They operate with government uh, assistance and often with government bailing them out. I, I like to say, and I think the history shows this, that private actors like the government to stay out of their business until they get into trouble. And then they immediately go to the government to bail them out, to help them, right? right. And, and when you're dealing with something like space where the fixed costs, the investments are so high, Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a role for government. So they might not be rockets launched by NASA, mm -hmm. but NASA will be collaborating, sharing information. I mean, as, as it does already, right? How do we all have GPS? Right. Because of satellites that were put up largely by government entities. Right. Providing us with that access. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. And uh, in terms of, as, as you said, um, as you just mentioned, with regards to our access to GPS technologies, the previous Cold War conflicts often allowed us to reap the benefits of the space race, more particularly um, some of our semiconductor metals and sort of the birth of Silicon Valley. So um, there is a sense of optimism to this, I feel, in the sense that a lot of people have looked at the sort of past year, not from not uh, pausing it from a historical perspective, but just if you really just lived through just one year, if all you knew was just 2020, you just basically saw death, bloodshed, and just darkness. And I think from a historical perspective, which I think sometimes is often refreshing, is that you probably look at some of the things that happen on the news media and sometimes with people, and you just probably like, is there a sense of like uh, hysteria to yours? It's like, I've seen this game before. It's like, or I sort of read about this. It's like, this is something that's really, it's not, it's not unique to the United States or unique to this generation or unique to everyone born past 2020. But it's it's a funny thing about how like the whole history repeats itself. It's like, it's funny to see this happening all the time. So. Uh, that's where I kind of see the whole, I guess, silver lining to all this, which is out of this might come, as you see, a, a new roaring, a new roaring 20s or this idea of maybe the economy sure is in shambles. But at the same time, the, the, the will, the will, the will of free people, peoples everywhere, I guess, is ultimately is the thing that kind of shifts 
societies forward. It sort of pulls, uh, I guess, sinking institutions out of the water and then innovates and sort of trailblazes to the next frontier. And I think, like, do you see that being sort of called the silver lining for some of the young people who sometimes seem that they've lost all hope? Uh, is that something that you always, you, you sort of would tell them to look towards? I think history does offer us hope. Uh, first of all, what you see from a historical perspective is how resilient human beings are, mm. uh, how much we've been able to adjust to difficult circumstances. We all have. Everyone in Gen Z has that I know, because everyone in Gen Z still went to school. They just didn't go to whatever their school was. But and maybe it wasn't as good. Maybe it wasn't. It didn't work out as well. But they were able to progress with their education uh, if they were fortunate enough to be healthy and have access to the internet, mm -hmm. right? We, we, we are resilient uh, and you see that resilience. And you also see, as you look at the world historically, that moments of difficulty often open up possibilities for change, right. especially for young people, because quite, quite honestly, these moments of difficulty kill older people, right? And they open space for younger people. Mm -hmm. So there, there's there's more space for younger people. That, that's that's a hopeful element too. It doesn't mean there aren't costs and tragedies associated with it, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of hope there. I'll say that history also offers us another point of wisdom, which is that we also recognize that there could be complacency. One of the things that, that brought us to this moment was the complacency of people who believed what we were warned of for decades of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. These pandemics happen, uh, every hundred years or so, if not less. Uh, and in an interconnected world where we're exchanging germs mm -hmm. in the way we are, it's more likely to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we were warned of this, but because it hadn't happened, people wouldn't believe it. Right. They wouldn't prepare for it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a gift we have now because now we know we're all smarter. Every single person who admits that there was a pandemic, which thankfully is most people, not everyone, it should be, uh, is smarter. Now we know. Now we know this can happen. So the real question is, what are we going to use this new intelligence for? How are we going to build a society that's more resilient, not just so we can react to a pandemic, but so we can prevent it as we go forward? Yeah, now, going back to the whole United States is the center of the world, uh, and we're moving towards a more decentralized future with things like crypto technology and blockchain. So what do you see the role of the president moving forward? So this is what I wrote my last book on. I think, I think that the... The president has never been someone who could really dictate what happens within the U.S. or abroad. That's a sort of myth. Presidents have always had to compromise and work with many different groups at home uh, and abroad. I think uh, going forward, the biggest challenge for uh, President Biden and future presidents will be to determine uh, what it is that the United States has an as an identity when it interacts with the wider world. Uh, are we are we uh, still the leading democracy? Are we a society that's in encouraging innovation. If we are, we have to show that because people have doubts now. People have, have grave doubts. Are we a society of diversity or a society of racism, right? Now, these are all overdrawn distinctions, but determining what it is, what our image is, what our uh, place in the world is, that's going to be very important. Presidents do play a role in helping Americans to have this dialogue and helping to share that dialogue with the rest of the world. So that's the challenge. The opportunity is that despite all the difficulties we've had the last few years, there really isn't um, anything to replace some of the core roles the United States plays in the world. We talked about it already, money, mm -hmm. right, is one major element about it. Uh, global culture, the influence of Hollywood, right, the influence of American music, right, it's still so central to so many parts of the world. Right. And the opportunity for presidents is to turn that into value for the policy elements we care about? How can we turn that influence into supporting 
a more sustainable climate? How can we turn that in, that into more energy uh, efficient ways of operating? All sorts of things along those lines. So it's turning our core strengths into elements of international collaboration and leadership, not conflict. Right. And uh, we're uh, moving on to the uh, sort of a few of our last themes. But before we uh, go on to our three takeaways, I kind of wanted to touch upon a few things here. So with regards to, as you mentioned before, institutions have a tough time catching up with the rest of the population, or or at least a trailblazer that are the young, ambitious, the ones who generally don't have all the funding with them, but are the ones who are willing to trailblaze forward. I don't know if you've heard of uh, a thinker by the name of like Eric Weinstein, if you might have heard of him. But mm-hmm. anyways, m- many people along those lines, many of your so-called VCs in Silicon Valley and some of the people that I guess both of us listen to in terms of the STEM space have this sort of idea that um, we've reached this um, peak of like stagnation and plateau in society and some of our institutions per se, the, all the problems that we've sort of seen in 2020. And this has sort of been, this has sort of been our, I guess, hunch as we sort of made our uh, one-on-one episodes is that a lot of the institutions that we're seeing now are sort of stagnating because they've just been, as, as as we've mentioned before, just propped up over time and just kind of stay, I guess, concrete so that people at, in power, I guess, at those institutions are not fearing anything sort of just displacing them en masse. And I think, uh, do you see this point in history uh, with the rise of, as you said, even though, um, as even though you said that you're exploring this technology further, but the idea of just decentralization, the idea of, um, the cost of the barrier of entry to anything, education, to access to books, to resources, to information on a grand scale, as that dollar amount and that energy amount is becoming lower and lower and lower. Uh, are you seeing decentralization as sort of being a solution to some of the establishment problems we've been having, not just in the United States, but more so globally speaking? Because as you said, the United States leads the world in the, rep- in the sort of building of its own institutions and generally other countries follow suit uh, the model of the United States. We can definitely say here in Canada, but more so the soft power influence that we've seen in the United States across the world. Do you see that Gen Z's role now in a more uh, pushing towards more of a decentralized world? Do you think uh, decentralization is the key? And if so, how does have you seen this happen in any other historical uh, uh, moment in history? Has this ever happened where on such a scale that individuals all of a sudden become empowered more so than a collective government? You could argue maybe the Enlightenment, but anywhere other time. So, so we go through different phases in history when the technology and circumstances encourage centralization or encourage decentralization. So the late 19th century was a period of centralization, right? we call it the period of state building. Most of the modern states we know uh, exist from then. So France was called France before the late 19th century, but it wasn't a modern state. It becomes a modern state in the late 19th century with a modern bureaucracy, with a modern identity, with a single language. Uh, Italy is the same story, right? Uh, it, people in southern Italy couldn't understand people in northern Italy until the mid-19th century, early 20th century, because of centraliz- centralizing elements. The medieval world was much more decentralized. So um, we go through different phases. Uh, but what's also always true is the phases don't move in one direction. So there are elements of our world that are decentralizing, and Gen Z is part of that. Um, You can see this uh, particularly if you think about cities, how different cities like Austin, uh, London, um, Dubai are from the world around them, right? Mm, right, And and how they they operate. Yes, they have national governments, but they often operate on their own. And you could paint, you could do a map of the world just based on cities that are similar, even though they're across cultures and countries. So, so there is a decentralizing element there, but there also are centralizing elements. Again, think about the the vaccines, who's distributing those vaccines? How were they made? Mm -hmm. They were made almost in every society 
by private actors working for a government, a central government, mm -hmm. and the central government is distributing mm -hmm. those uh, those vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. Think about the prevalence of warfare in our society. And of course, there are terrorist groups and non-state actors, but most warfare is still conducted by states, by governments, mm -hmm. including the U.S. government, right? right. So, so I think we're seeing both tendencies at the same time. In the United States, for example, I think there will be more push to decentralize certain elements of our society. Mm -hmm. But there's also now a stronger push following Canada's model, I think, to create a nationalized health system of some kind, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So everyone can have basic access to health care. My Gen Z students uh, have to not just worry about finding a really good job to use their talents, but a job that will provide them with health insurance. Right, right. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. They should be able to go open their own business and not have to worry about insurance because the insurance should come from some nationalized system as it does in Canada, right? We're behind Canada mm -hmm. on this. So, so my point would be that maybe we're seeing more decentralizing tendencies, but what we have to be aware of is even as we're decentralizing, there are still other centralizing tendencies. Both can and will happen at the same time. Right. And uh, from the, before we get on to the three takeaways, uh, I wanted to ask you in terms of a historian uh, on leadership. I think... If anything, we can take away from if anyone can take away from this episode is the potential for uh, dire situations often produce the greatest leaders or often produce uh, or often sort of spark the fire in sort of current leaders to kind of rise up to the occasion of greatness. Like we've seen this throughout history, right? If you think of like Churchill uh, in 1941 when like Britain was all alone versus Nazi, versus Nazi Germany, or if you think of any other historical narratives, um, you've often have people sort of break from their shell and kind of expose their true sense of self, their true sense of leadership. And I think now more than ever, living in a, as you said, more complicated world, more interwoven world with the more comp with sort of uh, 50 different narratives all being played at once. It's more tougher now than ever to be fully informed on many things. And so often you've, I've heard from your previous interviews, you often said that uh, the, uh, you have certain qualities that you've often seen be repeated in leaders in leaders uh, throughout history. And so uh, what are some of the, if you can mention certain leaders or certain, I guess, books or certain, I guess, traits that uh, that you've seen in people or in societies that have sort of progressed anytime there's been a dire situation and often yeah. why, why if it is that sometimes you always have opposing groups and there's always been that one person that's kind of came in the middle and facilitated dialogue or actually facilitated the idea that, or reiterated the idea that we are now we are a cosmopolitan society. We're, we're pretty much the same. Despite us looking different, despite us having different ideologies, we have to understand that life is not ideal. Uh, this world is not ideal. Our systems are not ideal. The best way we can move forward is to accept that there are going to be trade-offs between all different types of groups. So who are some of these leaders and what are some of the traits that you've seen throughout history? Sure, sure. So, uh, and, and it's a great question for a historian because this is one of the things we study. And mm -hmm. I've written books about many different leaders because I've been interested in exactly this question. What is it that motivates them? The, the, first, the first lesson, uh, and it's actually the point of my, of my book, The Impossible Presidency, is that um, actually great leaders are, are not universal. They're not qualities that carry across every time period. It, it depends on the moment you're in. So some presidents, uh, some prime ministers, some generals, some business leaders are great in one circumstance and not in another. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first thing, the first lesson uh, to be a leader is know your times. Don't just know who you are. Know the times you're living in. Uh, and the times you're living in might demand different things from you than they would in other times. Um, people are looking for different things from Joe Biden today than they did when he was in Ob Barack Obama's administration. Not just because he was vice president then and president now, but, but because we're in a different world, mm -hmm. we're in a different place, right? So leaders are made by the times. 
or as uh, Bismarck said, the great German leader who I've studied and who influenced Henry Kissinger, who I wrote about, Bismarck said that uh, we don't make history. Uh, we grab on to the uh, coat of history as it passes us by, and we just try to tug it in one direction mm. or another. So that's the first thing. Be humble enough to know that even if you're the most powerful person, uh, you are dependent on your circumstances. Understand your circumstances and then see your opportunities. That's point number one. Uh, point number two, I think, which comes from uh, George Washington, who I've written a lot about, um, and the thing that's most extraordinary about him is you have to remain humble. The time you fall as a leader, the time you make big mistakes is when you think you are invincible and all-knowing. Mm -hmm. And we all see that happen. It, it's not a flaw in one person's character. It's how power corrupts us. Mm -hmm. It's how power, right? You, you've just... Whatever sports you play, if you play basketball, you've just hit three three-pointers, you think you can't miss. And then you miss the next 10, right? Because you get sloppy. You get overtaken with your own triumph. Um, George Washington remained remarkably humble uh, and didn't misuse his power, not because he had the smartest answers to things he didn't, but because he understood he had to always recognize his own limits and always be, always be humble. Remind yourself to be humble. Have a partner who reminds you to be humble. I've often felt one of the best things my family does is I, no matter what, anything I achieve at work, I come home and I still have to do the dishes, right? That's, <laughs> that's important. Um, mm -hmm. Third thing, right? So we've got understand your context. We've got be humble. Third thing, and this is what I learned um, studying Franklin Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln in particular, um, you have to empathize with people who are different from yourself. Being a leader is less telling people what to do. It's more understanding people where they are and finding ways to bridge the difference between where you are and where they are. Mm -hmm. Empathy is so important mm -hmm. and listening and listening. I actually think leaders should talk less and listen more, more. Right. talk less and listen more. And then the final point I'll make, uh, and, and this is a point that I think um, is really um, exemplified uh, by someone like Angela Merkel in Germany, um, which is that um, leadership, and we said this before, it's a long game. You know, don't look for everything at once. Uh, look for the opportunities. Be an opportunist. See where there are opportunities. You have to know where you want to go. If you want to create a more racially inclusive society or you want to build a business that transforms the way we think about education, you know where you want to go. Uh, but you've got to be investing for the long term. And I think one of the challenges when you're following investment markets is they often incentivize the short term. Short -term yeah. You have to find a way to please those in the short term, but also pursue the long term. Uh, as I understand some of the great technological leaders in the world today, I think they're, they're, they're trying to figure that out, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Michael Dell bought back his company, right? Uh, here in Austin. So even though he cares about the stock market, he didn't want to be driven by short-term decision-making. Mm -hmm. If I understand Elon Musk in his in his best and worst moments, right? He's he's thinking long term, right? People told him Tesla was not going to make it. He stuck with it. He carried it forward. So you've got to find a way. And Angela Merkel in Germany, I think, has done this over more than a decade. You've got to find a way to to keep the long view, even as you please people in the short term. So yeah, I guess we'll go on to our recurring segment then. So these are our three takeaways. So these three takeaways can be about anything said on the podcast or like three life lessons you want to leave our audience. And so with that being said, what are your three takeaways? So and I'm going to aim my three takeaways at, at Gen Z. Uh, first, first is, and we, can, we talked about this already, uh, there's so many reasons to be hopeful in the world. 
To be hopeful is not to deny the tragedy and the horror. We also have many horrific things that happen, particularly in the United States. The United States is still a profoundly racist society. Uh, we're still doing horrible things to people in our country we shouldn't be doing. And we do these things to people outside of our country. Uh, but there's also enormous hope for countries like the United States and for people in them. And you have to be hopeful if you want to make change. You have to be hopeful. The change makers in history have been people of hope, not ignorance, informed hope. Second, um, our point about institutions. Institutions matter enormously. No one makes, uh, becomes rich or changes the world themselves. You need institutions. You need a city. You need a government. You need people. You need a healthcare system, an energy system. Understand those institutions. Those institutions, as we talked about, change more slowly than we do. And work on reforming those institutions. The conversation I often have with young tech entrepreneurs in Austin and in Silicon Valley, where I try to bring them in perspective as a historian, is to say, you've got to pay attention to these institutions you're trying to run away from, and you've got to change them, because otherwise they're going to stop you from changing the world, right? So get involved in institutional reform. Don't, don't even have to be a partisan, but get involved in reforming institutions, universities, governments, et cetera. And then the third point, um, and it's it's the one uh, we just talked about, um, really set yourself up in your talents, not just for some short-term gains, but really for a long-term passion. Pursue your passion. Find a way to change the world and get rich on a 30-year timescale and start doing it now. You don't need to live in a mansion when you're 25. You really don't need the Ferrari right, right now. Right. <laughs> you want to live in a better world. You have the talent. You need to start looking toward that. That's where history helps you and start planning and thinking in that direction so that in 30 years, you've pursued your passion, you've made yourself wealthy, and you've changed the world. That's that's the secret to success I've seen historically. It takes discipline and it takes a willingness to invest now. Uh, but this is the time to do it. You can eat ramen for a few years and you can make the world a better place. <laughs> For sure, for sure. Yeah, and uh, thank you. And with that, we come to the end of the episode. Uh, we want to thank you, Mr. Suri, for giving us some of your time. Uh, we know you're a busy man down there at UT Austin. Uh, definitely, it was pretty cool to connect with someone like literally a uh, country apart. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've definitely taken a lot in terms of uh, in terms of something that we we probably Gen Zs don't normally hear, which is a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, it's often been my both of our uh, observance in in the recent past year, which is uh, people are quickly are quickly inclined to look for the more efficient and effective way to like uh, simp simplify a lot of our issues. Mm -hmm. And I think it just takes a bit of effort, as you said, on our end is uh, if you want to be a change maker, if you want to, if your goal is to be a change maker, uh, you have to take one step forward and uh, one step back at the same time and understand where am I headed and where have I come from and you know what, whether or not I'm living the path and living the life that I should be living. And so we want to thank you so much once again for joining us today. And, uh, well, and I just want to praise both of you. I think this is a terrific podcast and a great opportunity to create a long form, serious discussion among among the future leaders of the world. So I'm just I'm happy I was able to join you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you so much. Mr. And thank you to our audience for joining us this week. And I'll see you next week. Bye. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, comment and share. Check us out for an audio-only experience on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other outlets. Follow us on all of our social media, and please consider supporting us on Patreon. All of these links will be in the description. That's it for us today. Welcome to the new world.